we were having a discussion about um, Laura and I about how this poem may come across kind of intensely and that there's a lot of do this and do this and do this and um, and on the fourth day of Sashin, this is the fourth day, fourth day, fourth day of this retreat, um, we may be in more tender places. And so, um, how something like this is received, I don't know how it's being received, but maybe it feels strong, maybe it feels just right. Maybe it's not resonating. For me, this kind of language over the years, well, first of all, I'm going to say something about the translation. Just, just a general feel. Friends, um, many people know here of this community, Xianan and Xianai, who are Chinese Chanans. They say the softness that the softness is lost in the translation. Um, that the opening phrase, the supreme way is not difficult, or the great way is not difficult, if only you do not pick and choose. They said, it really, it's more of a feeling of, it's really not so hard, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to do this. You just have to do this thing here. And um, I think that energy, that kind of loving energy, is through the do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Recognizing that it's difficult to do all of this, and that it's lifetimes. And none of us cross the line. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's kind of a saying that all of, all of Buddhism is a commentary on the Buddha's first teaching. Just a wide, extensive, giant, unending commentary on one teaching. It's kind of true, in a way. I mean, it's kind of always referring back to the five aggregates of the mind are the cause of suffering. Pretty much everything is pointing at that in some way. So in the, in the Dhammachakapavatna Sutta, what's considered the first teaching, there is this, um, and I want to talk about this because I want to talk about what's meant by views. Um, in that first teaching, the Buddha lists all kinds of things that cause dukkha. Many of you are familiar with this. It talks about birth and death and wanting things that you don't have and wanting to push away things you do have. But in the end, he has this little thing, in short, the five aggregates, the five skandhas are dukkha. So, for those of you who remember, it's form, sensation, our perception, the way we perceive things, our karmic formations of the mind, that which makes up our histories and personalities and so on, and then consciousness itself, but dualistic consciousness, the consciousness of subject-object, that consciousness. So if we grasp any of this, 
then there's Dukkha. So one way of understanding view in this is the grasping of any skanda is a view. You grasp form, it's a view. You grasp your karmic formations, it's a view. You grasp perception, it's a view. Any grasping of any skanda is a view. If you demand that red is truly red, beyond all doubt, transcendently through all time, it's a view. Right? So, view is, um, runs deep. Right? View is, if I'm grasping anything that's arising as phenomena, it's a, it's a pretty, you know, so the request here is kind of a high bar. None of us are probably going to pull this off. <laughs> 24 hours, 7 days a week. Right? But we set it as an aspiration that we don't grasp what's arising. Right? That's what we set that aspiration. I can feel it, right? We set that aspiration with our hearts. Not with some intellect that think it, thinks it can actually accomplish something. That will just cause <laughs> tremendous suffering but to set the aspiration with our hearts, that, that the aspiration is that I'm going to try to not grasp what is arising, what's in front of me, the interaction with this person, what I think my personality is and who I am, what I think another person's personality is and who they are. And my goodness, when they come together, then we definitely know who's what. Right? We're clear on everybody. So, so the, um, so not grasping that, and the, and the Buddha, you know, in some ways the Shinshin Ming is really just restating the original teaching, because the response the Buddha gave to not grasping the five aggregates was the middle way, was the middle path, which is don't, don't take the ascetic path of exhausting the body, and don't take the indulgent path of indulging the body, right? That was one way he expressed it in that sutra. In another sutra, in the uh, Kachyanagota Sutta, he says the middle path is don't believe things are not real and don't believe they are real, right? So the middle path here is being expressed in the same aversion grasping dualism. Don't like, don't dislike. Just give that up. And it doesn't mean, we've said this before, it doesn't mean find the perfect tiptoe balance between like and dislike. Just give up the pole. Give up the polarity. Give up the whole way of thinking in measures. And the argument here and throughout Zen is that suchness, when realized, is without measure. There are, it has no measures. It doesn't measure life. Right? And any measures that exist in life are either understood as upaya, skillful in a particular context, or they are confusion. If they are anything other than understood as skillful in a particular context, they are confusion. If they are a truth, they are confusion. Right. Even this path, even Zen. Zen says over and over and over again, if you understand anything, if you understand Zen as anything but skillful within a given context, 
then you're confused. So this is saying the same thing. I mean, it's, it's so the lines I'm going to focus on are the one that start. <laughs> you know, when we run all these words together, it's really hard to find things. Um, but um, the one that starts, the deluded mind clings to whatever it desires. One very literal translation from the Chinese on this is the um, the the rash mind loves its clothes, <laughs> or the false mind loves its clothes. It loves grasping onto the things that dress it up, and um, and not the, not the not the not the dress that Laura's referring to, which is kind of an expression of suchness, <laughs> but the false clothes that we grab, and we all do it. We do it all the time. We're always grasping on to kind of false clothing for ourselves that support us for a moment. But that gets translated as the deluded mind clings to whatever it desires. Now this is the part that I think is really interesting. Using mind, when we're, when we're thinking about the Buddha's instruction, that the grasping mind, or the grasping the aggregates, is the cause of suffering. This line, using mind to cultivate mind, is this not a great mistake? Okay, so the first response to that, I don't know when I first read that long ago, it's like, well, what else am I supposed to be doing? And um, because what, what the poem's pointing to is the way that mind, the way that that shin gets kind of turned on itself. In other words, we make the mind an object of the mind. And we actually have to do this, right? So we have to do this for a while. We have to create what we call a witness, right? So people are experiencing that. There has to be a step back and there has to be the experience of a witness. Even Dogen says take a step back, right? So the doubling of the mind is necessary for a period of time. And, um, and so we use the mind, and in some ways, this is the interesting thing about being a human being, is the thing that confuses us is the path to waking us up. The fact that our mind doubles on itself is why we're confused. The fact that it kind of pulls back and makes us an object and then can't stop talking about that object, <laughs> right? That is what got us all here in some way, right? And yet, that's exactly what's necessary to clarify that problem. If we were just merged, we wouldn't have anything to look at. We wouldn't know what we're looking at. So, we need the deluded mind to wake up from the deluded mind. It's <laughs> the way it goes. And, um, and if you don't have a deluded mind, in, in, in kind of cosmological Buddhism, if you don't have a deluded mind, if you don't have the ability to double and step back, that's considered the animal realm, right? That's considered the realm of having all the karmic stuff, funct stuff functioning, but not being able to step back and kind of do anything about it. Now, I'm not entirely convinced myself that a lot of animals can't do that, but um, I think it's degrees. 
and some may do it better than us. But um, that's the kind of thinking, is that doubling of the mind is what puts us in the human situation. And so there is this deluded mind that's clinging to himself, clinging to itself. But what is being said here, which is kind of an ultimate perspective, or, he, or we could even say a Shikantaza perspective, is using mind to cultivate mind. Is this not a great mistake? Ultimately, it's a great mistake. This is not real. We're creating a fantasy to wake up from fantasy. We're creating a witness to wake up from the unconscious self-indulgence that is the mind, that is the human mind. And so we have to kind of step back and do that. And that witness ident starts identifying with lots of things. It starts identifying with the witnessing experience itself. It identifies with big awareness. It starts identifying with lots of stuff. And it needs to do that to a degree because it's got to get stable. There has to be a process by which this mind that gets pulled all over the place starts to get quiet. Now it's happening, I think, for most people in two ways. One is that it begins to identify with vast awareness. The other is the body just quiets down from sitting. Everything just starts to settle. The snow globe settles. Right? And um, that we don't have any power over. We don't have any power over any of this, actually. So we just keep returning and returning and sitting and sitting and sitting. And the separate self goes through its karmic process of becoming more reliable while the body and all the activity slowly settles. And as this happens, we start to be able to see causes and conditions. We start to be able to see um, more nuanced ways that we're dividing up the world and causing ourselves suffering. The erring mind begets tranquility and confusion. You might have noticed this. Because when the mind, this is such a helpful teaching, when the mind turns on the mind, even when it's doing practice, when the mind doubles on the mind like that, we all go through, this, this, we have to do this for a while. What we do is we create a mind that jumps back and forth between what we think is tranquility and confusion. This is what ease, this is ease, this is not ease, this is ease, this is not ease. And what do we do? We want ease, right? So we keep grabbing for ease. Right? And then, then, then all the activity comes, as soon as we grab for the ease. And it is the doubling, what he's telling us here, it is, is that separation that is making the mind an object <coughs> that is creating this vacillation. Because remember, the object arises with subject, subject arises with the object. Right? The minute we create the one who's looking onto the mind, we've now made an object that is all full of our desires. We want this to be comfortable. We don't want it to be discomfortable. We want it to prove that we're good people. We want our thoughts to be pure. All the things we now want this object to do for us. Still an object. We say, my mind. As long as we're in that frame, 
this is my mind and it says something about me as a what? Where is the me? It's saying something about. Back here behind the mind, looking at the mind, where is that thing? And, and so, there is, um, so there is this being with the mind as an object, and we're all doing it, right? We, I just had a good zazen session. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I had a bad zazen session because my mind was turbulent. Well, maybe your mind needed to be turbulent. Maybe actually for it to heal in that moment, it needed to be turbulent. Oh, I suffered the whole time, I was crying and so on. That's probably what needed to happen. Right? But we can't accept the kind of interconnected unfolding that allows our karma to be clarified. We just can't accept that. We have to, we're, we demand that it moves in a particular direction. That's the demand. And the particular direction is toward comfort. <laughs> That's ultimately the particular direction, right? I want this to move toward comfort. Oh, no, it's not comfort. I just want transcendental ease. <laughs> That's a much more spiritually noble thing than just pure comfort. <laughs> but we want it to move toward comfort, away from anxiety, away from heartbreak. And of course, I mean, of course we all want that. It just doesn't result in freedom. There's nothing to disparage about it. It just doesn't result in freedom. This bewilderment births tranquility and confusion. It brings about those things. And then he goes on next to say, in enlightenment there are no likes or dislikes. That's a nice translation, in enlightenment there's no likes and dislikes, but it's, a strong, it's stronger in the original, it's how an A, which is, there is no good and evil. Which is a much stronger statement. In enlightenment, in awakening, there is no good and evil. The mind that creates good and evil stops. Now that can be that can be very threatening as a concept, which is probably why they chose like and dislike. Right? Threatening as a concept, because if it's not good and evil, then oh my gosh, then the world is chaos and nihilism. Everybody does what they want. But this is a fear of the intellectual mind. This is a fear of the dualistic mind. This is not a, this is not a real fear. When the body is actually awake, when Shin is awake. You don't need abstract, none of us need abstract concepts of good and evil to be kind. We don't need abstract, we need an awake body to be kind. We need an awake heart to be kind. We need an awake heart that actually already knows exactly how to communicate to us the interdependence of all beings with me. I don't need to theorize that. My body's clear as a bell. The only thing in the way of that clarity, guess what? Our views. 
views are the only thing in the way. It's literally the only thing in the way of their clarity. If the views quieted, then it would be clear. If we weren't sure we knew everything about another person by the way they looked, acted, talked, behaved two minutes ago when they interacted with me and I formed an idea about them which was definitely the truth. If that were not going on, then our heart would be free to know how we are interleaved. It would not get confused by that. It only gets confused by our views. And, even better, if we're not doing this view thing, we start, our heart starts to feel this way toward us, toward ourselves. If we didn't have views, and these views are, you know, I, I don't want to, um, in any way, I think you know this about us by now, <laughs> Lord and me, I don't want to in any way be dismissive about how hard it is to give up views. And how a lot of views are in place because they meant safety and self-protection and um, they were necessary for survival and may still be necessary for survival, right? That may in fact be the case. How, how we relate to them though can shift. That can shift. It isn't giving up the wisdom that we've inherited. Some of these views were inherited and they were inherited because they are wisdom about how to survive in the world. Um, but even our deepest ancestral views, we have to find freedom. We have to find our freedom there. If there is going to be freedom, if freedom is the value, if not freedom from suffering and causing suffering. We always talk about freedom from suffering, but it's actually freedom from suffering and causing suffering. Because if we are suffering, we will cause suffering. If we are suffering from separation, if we are experiencing the dukkha of separation, we will cause the dukkha of separation. Even the best we can do, that's what we're going we're to sometimes do it. Compassion, care, karana, is freed when we are not grasping views. Karana is liberated at the moment we are not grasping views. That's when it's liberated. Up until that point, I mean, not that this is not um, good. Um, we're laboring over compassion. It doesn't just come easily. And it usually comes with opinions. Like who deserves it? Right? So so if the if if it's only in the dropping away of the polarity, the dropping away of the views, the dropping away of the separation, that compassion is free. And everybody has moments of this in the day. I believe. But um, 
And if, 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 if we don't, it's because the karma's pretty stuck, and that is deserving of compassion. <laughs> but, um, but this entire poem is a poem about liberating compassion, about freeing it, about freeing shin to function. So, I'm going to jump ahead. There's a line that says, In the very ultimate, rules and standards do not exist. In the very ultimate, rules and standards do not exist. Now, there are two characters there translated as rules and standards. One translates actually as path, or a course, or a way, or tracks, like left by wagons. And the other one translates as um, standard or norm, but it also translates, it can be used in verb form to mean to follow. So another way of talking about there's no, a way of talking about there are no, as you translated, there are no, um, there are no rules and standards do not exist. Another way of translating it is there is no path to follow. In the ultimate, there is no path to follow. And this completely corresponds to what the Buddha told us about the raft, right? You use the way as a raft, and once you cross the river, you throw the raft away. You don't need the raft. You don't carry it on your back. Right? This path that we are studying is to liberate us from when it when when we when there is liberation from comparative mind from views from the way we're talking about them, then there is no path to follow at that point. And the falling away of that path happens at the same time as the, as the liberation of Shin, as that which we trust. Because in that situation, and when Shin is trusted fully, as the foundation, as that which is communicating to us our interconnectedness with all things, then it's clear in context what is harmful and what is not harmful. We feel it right away, and this fast. If we're not caught up in a view, we feel it like that. If we're caught up in a view, we override it entirely and find lots and lots of support for our view. Hence the world. But if we're not doing that, if we're not overriding it in our anxious effort to find support for our views, then Shin is clear. Very clear what is harmful. We feel it right away. We feel, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, we feel how stupid that was just to do just that. You know, and I don't mean stupid in a self-attack way, just dumb. <laughs> Some things are just dumb. You know, some things are just unskillful. Some things are just, you know, and you can tell it happened. And so to feel with that, um, 
and they're hard to, they're just hard to confess. You know, the Buddha, I mean, the Buddha Dogen is always um, talking about confession in this context, right? And the centering of confession is a necessary process of when we are, we do not have faith in Shin, when we do not have faith in Buddha. Right? When, the, when we do not believe we are Buddha, when there is not faith in Shin, and we act without that faith, then usually the next thing that you, needs to happen is confession. <laughs> Hopefully not for an, a too egregious an act, but, but um, But it's, it's, it would be interesting for all of us to look, I mean, when we have a sense of coming from here, to begin to look at what activities, when we put ourselves in them, cultivate that faith and trust, and what activities, when we put ourselves in them, undermine it. begin to undermine it, begin to put us up here, begin to put us on the defensive, begin to bolster our views, begin to make us anxious around making sure that our views are true. All of those things that start to get riled up when there just isn't a simple faith in here. And it's a simple, it's a very simple faith that's very hard to come by. So he goes on to say, bright and empty, functioning naturally, Shin does not exert itself. And this is right after he, wait, did I jump too far ahead here? I did. Let's go back. Um, so after this line we just talked about, when the very ultimate rules and standards do not exist, then he says, develop a mind of equanimity, and all deeds are put to rest. Develop a mind, develop a heart of openness that isn't valuing. The Chinese is an, an agreeing heart of even rank. Right? So this a heart that isn't valuing the world mind of equanimity is not making this better than this. Right? This is a foundational mind. Not a mind that is operating skillfully in the world so that harm is reduced. This is the foundational mind. And the foundational mind is necessary for the other, for the discriminating mind to be skillful. This is not an argument that discrimination needs to be thrown out the window and we need to be some sort of, I don't know what that would even be, you know, unable to respond to the world. It's so that the discriminating mind is free to be skillful rather than entrenched. Okay, so it's not throwing the discriminating mind out, but as we're talking about shin at its foundational level, if we, de if we develop this shin of equanimity, of no rank, then this kind of self-propelling, I just thought of Ian's lawnmower, the self-propelling <laughs> egoic activity 
quiets. It just quiets down because um, it's not needed. And even when there is a discernment around what's skillful, and I'll talk more about this later, but a discernment of what's skillful, when views are dropped and a perspective is spoken, if views are in place in the way we normally hold them, then somebody has a view, somebody has a view, somebody has a view, and all these views are kind of slightly competing. Because I have my view, and that means even everybody else's views is slightly, slightly threatening to my view, right? Because my view is correct. So how can the other ones really be correct? Maybe they're nice views, but they're not really correct. And when we're really open-hearted, we'll admit they're nice, <coughs> but, um, but not totally correct. And, but if that falls away, and the idea of a view being truth falls away, then views become possibilities. And then the room changes, right? Because you are stating a possibility, and you are stating a possibility, and I'm stating a possibility, and we're all stating possibilities. And when we're all stating possibilities, then together we can discern what's skillful, based on the context at a given time. But the minute somebody makes their possibility the truth, that whole thing blows apart. That's why consensus is really hard to make work, because it's still a bunch of people who think they're right. And as long as it's a room of people who all think they're right, <laughs> consensus is really difficult. So you either end up with consensus not working, or it's kind of an agreement with the hidden power structure in the room that's functioning as consensus. Right? So, but when it all turns into possibility, then, then we're in a different situation, because then it's dynamic. And we get to hear that. We may not agree with that, but let's entertain it for a minute as a possibility and see if there's anything to be heard there. And I always am in pain when I watch myself not be able to do that and respond in a way that did not entertain that possibility. And it always hurts. And it always causes harm. So we developed this mind of equanimity and all deeds are put to rest. Our intentional mind, our mind that's exerting itself all the time, gets to be quiet. Anxious doubts are completely cleared. So just for fun, um, these two words are put together to, to mean suspicions, or in this case anxious doubt, who ye, but the who part means fox. So, because we all know what fox means, or not all, but fox has this meaning in Zen tradition, right? Being this um, way of not facing or looking at our karma, right? Fox gets a little bit of bad rap, but um, the doubting fox quiets down or is exhausted completely. So. When we develop this mind of equanimity and everything quiets, doubts quiet too. And this is really 
interesting because the thing that that I think this is useful for for us maybe is um, doubt is caused by discrimination. This kind of discrimination. The conditions that result in doubt require a mind that grasps views first. If there is not a mind that grasps views, there is no territory for doubt to exist. You can't doubt anything if you're not grasping views. If you look at what doubt is, it's this desperate need to find a reliable ground among views that were grasping. But somebody made me doubt my view that I was grasping. Right? This is why doubt has such an interesting thing in the Chan tradition, in the Zen tradition, because there's the great doubt that sweeps all of the grasping of views out. Right? And the great doubt kind of destroys the process or, 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 or wipes away the process of trying to grab at anything for a ground. But as long as we're grabbing at things for a ground, then there's doubt. If we're not grabbing at things for a ground, then there's just life confidence. You're just life. And, and the heart knows that there's nothing, that none of these particulars are going to offer anything more stable than being the dynamic flow of life itself. There is nothing more stable than that, because it's not stable at all. It's not even trying to be stable. It's just a whirling flow of everything interacting. So we have to give up foundation. We have to give up false foundation. And in giving up false foundation, we give up doubt. If we're still trying for false foundation, there's always going to be doubt. Because doubt, because we know at some level it's nonsense. We should doubt it. At some level, it's, it's not true. We know it's not true. We know it's not reliable. We know the thoughts. At some level, we know all the thoughts going through our heads are unreliable as solid foundations. And we even know, I believe, at some deep level, that the self we've constructed and its histories and its stories and all the things we're rooted in, not reliable. So in some ways, once there's enough stability of body, heart, mind, energy, Follow your doubt all the way through and let it take everything out. Because it's not, that stuff isn't reliable anyway. And then we can return to that same field with skillfulness. Right faith at that point, the poem says, right faith at that point is made upright. Nothing lingers behind and nothing is remembered. So this right faith is made upright, it's like, that goes back to the beginning of the poem, right? This is when faith and mind is stable because doubts are gone. Doubts are gone because there has been equanimity and the activity of the mind is quieted. We can feel this in zazen sometimes. Okay, I have to move a little. I'm going to say, we are not... This nothing lingers behind, nothing can be remembered. If we're not marking 
this nothing lingers, the, the character means to mark or to sign, so I would actually say this a little differently. I would say if we're not signing or marking the moment with our projections and with our views, then everything flows in such a way that nothing is remembered, right? It's not remembered because we're not grasping onto it in the first place. We're not making it an event that we should be upset about. And so it goes. My mind still likes to get upset about things. And I know good and well I'm doing that because at the moment I'm grasping that moment as personal. And when I grasp any moment as personal, as something happening to me, I remember it in a different way than if I don't. If I don't grasp it as something personal happening to me, I, don't, I hardly remember it at all. By the way, one of the not-so-great side effects of letting go of thoughts all the time is that you get good at letting go of thoughts. So you don't remember a lot of things. Um, but, and it just goes. And so that is, um, and it's fluid, and the mind becomes fluid, and the next line is bright and empty, functioning naturally. The mind does not exert itself. It's energy, that karmic energy stops. It is, a place, it is not a place of thinking, difficult for reason and emotion to fathom. This, it is not a place of thinking, is really talking about Shin specifically, right? This is not a place of thinking. It's not a place of that kind of discernment. It's a non-dual knowing of life fully. When the mind settles and suddenly you're just the room, and you're the breathing, and you're the valley, and you're all of that's happening, the mind isn't actively deciding whether the tree is good or not, right? It's not doing that. It's just being. And so again, this thing of just the dropping of views, I'm just kind of, I want to say this because even though it's difficult, um, if we can set it as an intention, that when we have an interaction with ourselves or another person where there is pain, the very first question of a Buddhist practitioner wisely would be, what was the view I brought to it? What was the view I brought to it? Not, what did they do to me? What was the view I brought to it? Right? And what is going on? Now, it's not to say that the other person doesn't have their own culpability, but it's not for me to, to discern what that is. Because I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the information required. I may have seen some habit patterns over time and make a decent guess, but it's a guess. I don't know. And I can live in that world based on those guesses, and I can be 100% sure my guess is truth, but I will suffer from that. And it will blur, it will confuse every interaction I have with that person or myself from that point forward until I stop it. And this is really important for us all to this is, in, in a way, the most important thing for a sangha. Is that we are bringing our views to interactions with each other, and we are grasping them. And when we have pain, we're, we often externalize the pain onto the other person, rather than look at our own view. 
and first ask, and it's not to say there's not culpability with the other person at all, but we don't first ask, how are we going to clarify? <laughs> how are we ever going to clarify the responsibility with that other person if we don't first clarify what is con what's being projected from my side? It's literally not possible. I can't see clearly until I'm clear about this. I'm clear about this view. So to drop that, or not drop it, that's, but to clarify it, so that there can be a compassionate discourse with each other, if we don't do that, then what we will do is some version of, or we can, some version of building legitimacy, verification for our own views. Whether it be through gossip or, you know, talking to people we know who will agree with us, whatever it is, we will build evidence that our view is the case. Or we might do something else. We might be somebody who takes on another person's view and squashes ourselves with it and then tells us our, tells stories about how their view is absolutely right and we build that one. We can go lots of ways with this, but they all end up in harm. So I think this is, a, I'll stop because I think I have to stop now. Um, I'm going to say that it's, it's a deeply loving communication because it's giving us, it's giving us the way, I don't like to say way out, but it's the best I got right now. Um, it's giving us a way out of this. And the way out of it is not um, finding reliable views. That is not the way out at all. It's not beliefs. It's settling into a body that can be trusted. A friend of mine who's a philosophy professor in Texas, he said, you know, there's one, he said, this is broad sweeping and you can argue it, but he said, basically, the difference between um, European thought and kind of the thought that that comes out of um, Buddhism is that in one case there's a total distrust in the body and a complete trust in the intellectual mind and in the other case there's a complete distrust in the intellectual mind and faith in the body. And, um, and this is, there is a faith in the body here. There is a faith that the way is going to be to clarify the karma of the body so that we can, so it can, it can become um, this thing where it says functioning, functioning naturally, the, the, the characters can also be naturally luminous, where the body can be naturally luminous. And this, the Buddha used early on in that first teaching, he used the word um, aloka to, do, to talk about what awakening looked like, and it was the luminosity of the body when it's clarified. Right? And there is, um, and we don't need to grab onto our thoughts anymore. We can trust this life, and in trusting this life, we can trust the life that is others, which is different from being naive about the karma of others. Trusting the life of others is not the same as being naive about the karma of others, 
I can be very clear on the karma of another person and trust the life that is them, trust Buddha, trust the Buddha that is them, that is there in the process of awakening while their karma is completely unreliable. So, this puts us in a place of being able to settle into that way. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.